It is great to see everyone. My name is Justin. For those of you that don't know me, welcome to Zion. I am glad that you are here with us today. Uh, I'm excited today. We are finishing our mini-series on Saul, uh, and you get to read along on your phones, or if you brought a physical Bible, and you're a real Christian, (laughs) unlike me. Uh, You can open up to 1 Samuel. First, we're going to be reading from chapter 28. And then we're going to skip a little bit ahead and read from chapter 31. Uh, But we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 15 to 19. And um, we're going to have fun today. Today, uh, the sermon is called The Death of Saul. The Death of Saul. Spoiler alert. Sorry. So if you've been tracking with us so far, uh, last week, uh, we, we have just been following the saga of, of Saul, uh, and we were introduced to David, uh, and when we come to chapter 31, uh, the saga between Saul, God, David, and Samuel continues. This really, uh, what I would call a, a cautionary tale that we get out of Saul and his life. Uh, And so the Philistines are back, right? When David defeated Goliath, you see that the Philistines get routed and they beat a lot of the army. But now the Philistines are back and they are ready to attack into Israel. And this kind of dynamic that we've seen happen over and over again happens again, which the Philistines come. They gather their armies. Saul gathers his armies. He goes out to meet them in battle. He gets close to them. He sees the army. And what happens? He becomes paralyzed with fear. And when he gets really scared, he does something. He goes to God and he says, God, you know, are we going to win this battle? Should I go fight? He doesn't hear anything. So then he calls some prophets and he asks them, should I go and should we fight? He doesn't hear anything. Prophets don't give him an answer. And so because of this silence, Saul does what Saul does best is he begins to rely on himself. And what he does here is he goes to a a seer or a medium. You know, if you know anything about witchcraft or Santeria, you know that these are people that speak with the dead. And so he calls a medium and the medium says You know, when Saul comes, he disguises himself. He wears a robe. He doesn't want the medium to know who he is. And she says to him, you know that this is illegal in the land. Saul, the king, has outlawed us, all the mediums. Uh, And so I can get in trouble if I do this for you. And he goes, she doesn't know it's Saul. He says, don't worry about Saul. Don't worry about the law. Don't worry about what he has said. I just, I need you to do something for me right now. And so she says, okay. Um, You know, even though it's against God's law, even though it's against the law of the land, Saul kind of forces her hand and makes her do this. And so he tells her, I want you to call the spirit of Samuel, because at this point, Samuel has died. Uh, And so she does what he asks and he she calls the spirit of Samuel because Saul needs to ask Samuel, what do I do in this situation? What do we do now? And so. Samuel comes, his spirit comes, and Saul begins to talk. And this is where we're going to pick up in our dialogue in chapter 31, verses 15 to 19. It says in verse 15, Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, 
I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no law, no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Samuel, even, even as a, in death and a spirit is a G. He says, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the, of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, meaning dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. The saga of Saul continues. God does not answer Saul on his terms. He does not answer Saul on, on how Saul thinks he should be answered. And so what does Saul do? He does what he has constantly done that we've seen him do over and over again. He disobeys and he takes things into his own hands. He thinks if God will not solve this the way I want God to solve this, then I am going to solve this how I want to solve this. And so he turns away in disobedience to sin and he looks instead to witchcraft to solve his problems. This should sound familiar. We've seen Saul do this over and over week after week as we've, as we've talked about him now. So for Saul's constant disobedience, what has God said? God already declared to Saul something. What was the declaration? I'm going to take your kingdom from you. Because Saul was not living a life of repentance. Instead, he was living a life of regret. The judgment God had on him was I'm taking away the kingdom. But now, Samuel not only reiterates what God has said, but because of Saul's continued disobedience, Samuel decrees a new judgment on Saul. That not only was the kingdom going to be lost, but because he sinned even further, this new judgment was that Israel was going to be defeated in the war with the Philistines. That Saul was now going to die right away. And that also his sons were going to die with him. So Saul did not learn his lesson. He keeps coming back. He keeps on disobeying. And he keeps going to God on his own terms. And when God does not answer, he sins and lives out in disobedience. This is how you know that Saul did not live a life of repentance. See, the truth of the matter is this, is that oftentimes the deeper you are into your sin, the harder it is to get out. Anybody that's ever sinned before, which is, you know, turn to your left and right, that person is sin. <laughs> you know this to be true. That, you know, sin always starts off in this, oh, I'll just, I'll just do it this once. And then we open the door, sin gets its foot in. And then what happens? Sin pushes it open more and more and begins to creep in in our life until sin is just chilling on the couch in our, in our living room. Just like, yo, what up? You got food for me tonight? <laughs> Anybody have that obnoxious person that just comes over and clears out your fridge all the time? For parents, it might be some of your kids, you know? For... 
And that's what sin does after a while. It just it, it makes itself at home in the temple of our body. So in, in poker, don't worry, I'm not going to hell because I know poker. <laughs> in poker, this is what's called being pot committed. If you play poker, you know what this is. And I'll explain it to you if you don't. If you've ever played Texas Hold'em, in Texas Hold'em, what happens is you have four rounds of betting. And when you start off with a good hand, let's say you get same suit, you know, ace-king. That's an amazing hand in poker, the, the two that you get uh, right when the dealer deals. Then you think, okay, I'm going in. You put a lot of money in first round. And then, and then they, they put out the first three cards and, and hold them. And when they put out those first three cards, you think, man, I got nothing on the table right now. But you think, I got same suit, ace-king. Like, I'm going to go in. But then somebody else, they called you and they're like, you know what? I'm going to go in too. I'm going to put some money in. Maybe a couple other people put some money in. So you think, okay, we're getting down. I just put in a lot of money. I don't want to lose this money now. I got to keep going in with more uh, in the money. And so this is why gambling is addictive and not recommended. Uh, And and so... (laughs) Then you, the next card comes out, it's like, man, that, that's not good either. But now everybody else is getting hyped about the cards coming out. And so they're betting more money. And you're thinking, man, I already put in like half of my money. I better win this. Hopefully I have better cards than everybody else. And you start throwing in more money. See, the professionals all know this about being pot committed. It's a fallacy. There is no time where you shouldn't be able to fold because you've lost too much money. But when you play with somebody that's inexperienced, they think, I've already put in all of this money. I need to keep on putting more to take it to the end. And that's what sin is like in our life. Is when you're pot committed, you pretty much know you're going to lose. You're going to lose all your money and every single dollar that you put in there, you're going to lose more. And when sin comes, it makes you really happy that first round. Oh yeah, this is good. You're going to get what you want. Wait till that next card comes out. It's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that card, but let me put in a little bit more. Maybe something good will happen. Maybe I'll get what I want. Maybe I'll get what I, what I desired, whether that's joy, whether that's finances, whether that's blessing, whatever it is that you're looking for, the things, that, the decisions that you're making for those reasons. Then that next card comes out and you're like, oof, you know, this is not good, but I'm going to give a little bit more of myself. I'm going to put in a little bit more because at this point I got to keep going. And at the end, what happens is that last card comes out, the last round of betting, and and everybody shows their cards to see who wins. And you show your cards, and you realize you've lost everything. And somebody else goes, and they take those chips, and they, thank you, this is mine. And that's the enemy in our lives saying, thank you, this is mine. You just sold your soul. You've given me everything you've had. You've given me your purity. You've given me your obedience. You've given me your life. You've given you your finances. You've given me your marriage. You've given me your kids. You've given me your kingdom. I'm going to take it all. Thank you. And Saul had this mentality, man, that he just kept going and going and going. And sin will do that. Think, making you think, well... You've already lied once about doing this. What's the big deal if you lie again? Well, you, you can't now say that you sinned and you lied. So now you need to cover that up with another lie. Well, now you need to go deeper into this lie. Now, now you're, you're living a total facade, a sham. 
The longer we hide our sin and live in it, the more we feel committed to the deception of not sharing it and repenting from it. See, this is the life of Saul. Saul was so entrenched in his ways of disobedience, it became a natural thing for him to do at the first sign of his trouble. He said, I know what to do now. I know where I'm going to go. It got so dark for Saul that he finds himself in the tent of a witch to summon the dead, to find out what to do. When we went through the series of Proverbs, if you were here, we learned something about death. We learned this, that death is not just some future reality in your life, that it's this finite time where you die and you go in the grave. Death is actually a present reality in our lives. It's something that's promised to us when we sin. It, death is not just the physical reality of no longer breathing, but death is the present reality of allowing sin to surround you. See, Saul's kingship and his entire life had the stench of death all over it because of his disobedience. If you read about Saul, you read about in this passage, he lived in fear. It says as soon as he saw that army, that he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. Living in fear is living a type of death in this life. He lived in depression. It says David used, if you read about Saul and David, Saul used to get so crazily depressed that nobody would be able to get him out of his mood and everybody would be scared and not want to be around him, not want to be in the same room with him because his depression would lead to crazy anger and nobody wanted to be around it. But they, but they, would, they would say David used to come and play the harp for him and that was the only thing that would soothe him to come back to a normal state. He lived in anxiety. He was constantly worried because he had this word spoken over him from Samuel that the kingdom was going to be taken away from him from a neighbor. And so when he saw David, every time that David came around, he began to get anxious. And what we read is we read chapter after chapter after chapter in the life of Saul of him chasing after David because he didn't want to lose the thing that he had already lost. I mean, there are so many sermons in this. <laughs> Saul was not at peace. His life from day to day, the more that you read it, you realize how death more and more entrenched itself around him. As in Proverbs, it made his camp with him. He went into the assembly of the dead. This is where he lived. These are the outcomes of disobedience. This is what happens when we live a life that doesn't put our faith and our trust in God, but instead we look to our own salvation. We disobey God. We say, you know what? I'm not going to do what you've called me to do. I'm not going to follow the way that you've called me to follow. I'm not going to listen to the, to the code that you've put in my life, but instead I'm going to do it my way. Saul refused to truly repent. Instead, he lived in constant regret for his decisions and his actions. 
He lived in his disobedience. And then finally, the ultimate death was proclaimed over him. When Samuel said, you know, at this time, you're going to die for real, for real. Soon, he told him. And he didn't know it was tomorrow. See, Saul, how he started out, he started out anointed, handsome, tall, ready to go. When it describes Saul in the beginning, it said that everybody else in Israel came up to his shoulders. That he was handsome. You know, think about that guy in the Axe commercial, just like tall, riding that horse. Uh, whenever Heather's with me, I got to change the channel whenever he comes on. It's not real life. <laughs> not for you, at least. <laughs> That was Saul. He, I mean, it was, the author made sure that you knew when you read about Saul that dude, this dude was, that, you know, it didn't say dark, but he lived in the Middle East, so he was tall, dark, and handsome. So somebody's like going like this back there right now. Calm down. The AC is on today, all right? You can't blame it on the heat. So Saul starts out this way, being anointed by Samuel, the first king of Israel, ready to literally conquer everything in his past. God was going to give him victory. But then we read about this kind of this last sin that Saul did, this last piece of disobedience. And then Samuel proclaims this word of judgment from God over him. And what we see if we... Skip over to now chapter 31. This happens the next day. We're going to read chapter 31, verses 1 to 9. This is the outcome. It says in verse 1, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malekshu, I don't know how to pronounce these guys' names. I forgot to check before we got here. The sons of Saul. That's what you need to know, the important part. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus, Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men. And on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped him of his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. His disobedience 
affected his kids, affected his men, affected his army, affected his cities, ultimately affected his life. Don't think for a second that your sin just affects you. See, in American individualism, we play our relationship with God solo. Where it's just like, when I, when I love God, it's only going to be that I love Him. And it's not going to really affect other people. I'm not going to care about it. I'm going to do this by myself. I'm not going to find community to do this with like Scripture tells us to. But then we also have the flip side of this, that when we sin, that we're just affecting our own life. That the death that encompasses us has no effect on the people around us. And that is also far from the truth. Just like our salvation not only affects us, but it affects those around us. Right? Because God said the greatest commandments, the two greatest commands are to love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Your salvation does not only affect your relationship with God, it affects everything, everybody around you. So does your sin and death not only affect your relationship with God, but it affects everybody around you. Sin will not only destroy you, but it will be part of the breakdown of your neighbor, of the people closest to you, of the people that live around you, are around you. See, sin is death. Sin is destruction. It will wreak havoc on your life, on the lives of those around you, on every system that you touch. That system will now be a sinful system. On the things that you lead, it will affect the things that you lead, the people that you lead. That will allow death and sin and destruction and havoc to be wreaked on everything that you touch. And in the, in the end, what we read about Saul is that it destroyed everything around him. His kids, the cities, his army. King David said this in Psalm 51. He said, I was conceived in sin. See, sin because of Adam is the natural state of all of us. We are conceived in sin. It is the natural inclination that we have from the moment that we are born. We want to follow our own desires. We want to be disobedient. We want our own way. We will throw temper tantrums as two-year-olds or as 30-year-olds or as 50-year-olds if we are never taught another way. They may look different. As a two-year-old, it may look like screaming and crying in public. As a 30-year-old, it may look like passive-aggressive anger against your coworkers. As a 50-year-old, it may be judgment and pointing down at those around you, at your family, and being bitter about life. See, we, we have this inclination towards sin. We are conceived in sin. And that sin, what it does is it begins to surround us and affect the people around us. If you've ever been like this or you've known somebody that has fallen into deep sin, you know what that's like. It affects mood. There's no joy in the presence of a person like that. There's no fun. There's no peace. Right? It, it literally sucks all those things out of the room. 
when it is present. And Saul, we see how his sin can destroy a nation, a family, and a person. The army gets routed. They lose his kids. They get killed. He dies. The cities get taken. Right, when we look around us and we wonder why. So many things are so corrupt, so messed up. Why systems are so wrong. And we, looked at, we look at governments and, and with the elections coming up, it's just not hard to see all the craziness that goes on. And you ask yourself, why, is it, why can we not get it right? It seems like impossible. Because as sinful people, we will just create sinful structures. We will create sinful systems. We will bring sinful things around us. We will create destructive relationships. And our proclivities will naturally go towards those things. But what's, and as I was meditating on this, kind of throughout the week, there's one thing that kept on coming up. And that was this, the importance to share the good news. Because we understand what sin can do. We understand how destructive it can be. We understand what happens when sin gets into a system, when it gets into a structure, when it gets into an organization, when it gets into a person, into a family, into a relationship. We see the destructive breakdown of that in Saul. How it almost destroyed a nation. But we have the remedy for this sin. Do you know that, church? That truly in our mouths, in our hearts, we have the remedy for sin. That we are called to proclaim the remedy to this sin. That Jesus literally said to go and baptize nations. That means people groups. That we are to proclaim the good news, the remedy for this sin. See, this is why it's so important that we can't keep the good news inside. That if our Christianity is just let me go to church and be blessed and feel good about my blessing and feel good about my life and how I'm doing, then we are missing the entire scope of Scripture. We are missing what we are supposed to be doing with our Christianity when we are sitting with our friend and they ask us about our, our faith and they ask us why we go to church and we are mute. We are missing the point of our Christianity. Because Jesus has given us the remedy for this sin. And where there is death, he has proclaimed life and given life. And where there is sin, he has proclaimed freedom. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Ephesians 2. Verses 1 to 10, and Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Translation, we are all like Saul. Disobedient, dead before we knew it, following our desires straight into destruction. Then Paul doesn't stop there. Somebody say, but God. In verse four, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. See, this is the beauty of God and what Jesus has done. Church, you need to have the gospel, the good news of the redemption of Jesus Christ memorized. It needs to be inside you so that any moment you can speak it to others or to yourself. Because the gospel is the power unto salvation, it says in Romans 1.16. That if we want to see this world liberated from death, destruction, and sin, then the only liberation for that is the proclamation of the freedom and salvation of the gospel. When we read Saul, it's very easy to just say, woe is me, woe is me, I'm never going to get good, the world stinks, we are doomed. And let me tell you, I've been there. I was there Wednesday morning, I was there Thursday night, I've been there. But that's why you need to have the gospel memorized, because when you start to learn to preach it to yourself, and every moment when you're feeling down, when you feel the, the grip of sin and death coming upon you, when you feel temptation getting the upper hand, and then you remember by the grace of God, I have been saved, that while I was still a sinner, while I was dead in my trespasses, God came and he saved us. That it was not by my work or my doing. That I did not go to that cross. I did not receive the beating. I did not live a perfect life. I did not raise from the dead, but by grace, because I believe in him. I died on that cross. I rose from that grave. And Christ saved me when I didn't deserve it, when I was like Saul and I was disobedient and I was a child of wrath. And because of that, God, I don't want to live in sin. I don't want to be disobedient anymore because I've never had somebody love me so deeply before. I've never had somebody care about me so much. I've never had someone give me so much grace in my life and mercy towards me before. And because of that, I don't want to do these things anymore. I don't want to live that life. And when we learn to preach the gospel to ourselves, what happens is it becomes normal and routine. 
19. And then when other people come in and we see the snares of sin gripping their heart and entrapping their life, what will happen out of natural inclination is we will say, I know the remedy for that. I know something that has the power of salvation over that thing that you have. I know what can save you. And you will begin to proclaim the gospel, the good news. And you will see how it is the power unto salvation for them just like it was for you. And when you walk into a room, death will no longer walk in with you, but instead joy will walk in with you. Patience will walk in with you. Blessing will walk in with you. Uh, Peace will walk in with you. Life will walk in with you. Every system that you touch will now have Joy and peace and justice in it. Everything that you lead will be led from a place of life and overflow and the good news of the redemption of Jesus Christ. The conversations that you have will now be sprinkled and proclaimed with the gospel so that you will see death turn to life in the people around you, in your family, in your friends, in your co-workers. Through faith in Christ. In his death that he died in our place. That's what we put our faith in. In his resurrection where he conquered that death. That is where we put our faith in. Scripture says that through faith. The conduit of faith, the conductor of faith in our life, we receive the grace, the blessing of God that covers our sin. That says you have been washed by the blood of Jesus. You have been made clean. You are now made new. The old has passed away and the new has come. Church, if you have not memorized the gospel. Then the first thing that you need to do every single day is read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, until you have memorized this. So until you become familiar with it, so that you can begin to proclaim it over your life. We have the remedy. Do you understand the power of that? The beauty of that? Every day on the news, I read statistics about all the sickness, all the depression, all the anxiety, all of the addiction. I read about it constantly. And if something doesn't stir in you that says, we have the remedy for that. Then you have not truly understood the gospel for yourself. And that's nothing to condemn yourself about. That should spur you on to say, Jesus. Teach me the good news. Teach me about Emmanuel. Teach me about the one who is God with us. Teach me about whose government is everlasting, who will have justice and peace beyond anything we can understand. It says about him in Isaiah 9 that the government he brings is the one of peace and of justice. This is the good news of the gospel. And when you look around you, it's very easy to see death. It's very easy to be down. It's very easy to be defeated when we see it. But something should rise inside of you that says, I know the remedy for that. 
Every time temptation comes, every time that death becomes to living in you, something inside should say, I know the remedy for that. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power unto salvation. But here's the thing. It must be proclaimed by God's people. It must be proclaimed by God's people. God's method for getting his message out is his people opening up their mouth to proclaim it. It's not enough just to be nice to people. It's not enough just to smile at everybody on your way to work. It must be proclaimed by the people of God. Because when the gospel is proclaimed, the spirit will do its work. And the power of God will transform hearts and lives. Church, if you've read with me the last four weeks about Saul, then you know the gospel must be proclaimed. Think about what one person in their sin can do. But then also think about what one person who gets a hold of the good news and can't keep it contained will do. Just as much as Saul spread death everywhere he went, we can spread life everywhere that we go. Can our prayer be, God, that you ignite us so deep with the gospel that we cannot contain it inside like that? It is fire like a fire shut up in our bones that cannot be contained. Can you stand and pray with me?